Welcome to a special edition of BioCentury This Week, a challenging year for gene therapies. Joining me to discuss this are... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. Going into 2021, expectations for gene therapies were high. Phase two and three readouts were among the top catalysts flagged by BioCentury at the start of the year, with hopes that new data would propel the modality into new indications, including non-rare diseases. Fast forward to October 21st, and it's been a rough year for gene therapies with setbacks spanning safety, efficacy, and access, putting drug developers, patients, and investors on notice that there's no glide path to fast approval or revenues for this class of treatments. Lauren, you have been digging into this for some time now. What's going on? Yeah, Jeff, I think you've summarized it really well. I remember back in December when I interviewed a bunch of investors for our financial preview story and The sentiment was that this was potentially going to be a watershed year for gene therapies, and it just hasn't really played out that way. Initially, we saw a few efficacy setbacks. People were very optimistic about Sarepta's DMD program. And in that case, right at the beginning of the year, we saw that increased expression of microdystrophin didn't necessarily translate to the clinical benefits that people were hoping to see. And that alone raised a lot of questions about how much expression you need in order to get these clinical benefits, how early you need to treat patients who have diseases that have a degenerative component. There are other efficacy setbacks, some programs for rare eye diseases that originally came from Nightstar. And then there are some market access issues. Bluebird has had an ongoing challenge of getting pricing agreements. I think the biggest concern has been the safety signals. So With a modality like this, where there are very few on the market, there's so much uncertainty around how these therapies are are going to impact patients long-term. I think any safety signal is a a huge concern, and there have been some really serious ones. The Estellas trial, where a fourth patient died this year, is sort of at the top of everyone's mind, but there have also been some other issues. The potential for cancer that has emerged from trials that Biomarin and Bluebird have been conducting. And even just smaller toxicities, like ocular toxicities, have led deals to be dropped and discontinued. It's a lot of mostly small things that have added up to be overall negative for the modality this year. I want to make this point because, Lauren, I know that in a couple of minutes we're going to talk about all of the reasons still to be optimistic in gene therapy, all the things that are going on. (laughs) And company by company, and we know some of them have even reached out to us, some of these issues that came up have been resolved or are getting resolved or companies are confident they will be resolved. And another thing I know we'll talk about is that this has not sunk the field in the way that the very early gene therapy death did in gene therapy's first outing with the death of Jesse Gelsinger. But I do think it's important to point out that, as you said, coming into the year, gene therapy was a field to watch. And we would have had our bicider preview 
talked about this, we would have had a lot of investors looking at this and even maybe drug developers thinking this is an area that might be close to market, primed to really taking off in the way we've seen some other new modalities take off. We could talk about bispecifics or ADCs have been there for a while now. And is it gene therapy's turn? And I think that for me, what we're looking at across the board is not yet. If you're an investor and you're not in gene therapies and deeply versed in it, you might be thinking this field is riskier and further away from actually generating revenues than I thought it was going to be. And that's a little bit of a damper. I think those in the companies and deeply entrenched in the field probably do know. And maybe you can talk to us now, Lauren and Celine, I'm sure you've got things to say as well about why there are still many reasons to be optimistic about gene therapy. I think you're right, Simone, that this is not putting a huge damper on the entire field. So many patients have been treated successfully and safely with the modality that these are just questions that need to be resolved before this can be a modality that's that everyone's getting for prevalent diseases. And you also made an interesting point that these pieces of news haven't even been deal breakers for the individual companies who've had these setbacks. These are just things that still need to be worked through. In terms of being optimistic about the field in general, there is so much development going on. I think there are close to 200 clinical trials of gene therapies right now. The number of setbacks relative to the number of trials that are ongoing isn't that big. And there's also the issue that we're seeing so many new companies be formed. And this is a story that will come out within the next couple of days. It's just the amount of innovation, next generation type of innovation that's going on in this next class of gene therapy companies. And hopefully what will help resolve some of these safety and efficacy issues. Yeah, I think these could be characterized as just the growing pains of a young field. I mean, we Mm -hmm. have had so few approvals in the past and now there's this deluge and FDA is preparing for it. It's funding CBER with the expectation of exponential growth in the number of reviews it's going to have to do. And it has projected 10 to 20 approvals of gene and cell therapies a year by 2025. So as the activity ramps up, these are the kind of things that are going to come out and more of them are going to come out. But in addition to that, we should start seeing resolution to some of these questions. Lauren, I'd like to get your thoughts on one company that has gotten across the regulatory goal line in Europe, but now is retreating from that market. And it's Bluebird. We have another announcement today that as part of winding down its operations in Europe, it's pulling a few MAAs from the European Union, as well as in the UK. What's going on there? First, there was a hiccup in Germany. They pulled the therapy from Germany, but they said we're optimistic in our conversations with other HTAs and and now this. I honestly, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I know that, you know, there've just been some problems with the pricing negotiations and the fact that companies want these gene therapy single treatments with long-term effects to be priced in such a way that it reflects the long-term value. And there's just ongoing disconnect between what the gene therapy companies are expecting and, and need to see and what some of the HTAs, I guess, are willing to pay for them. It leaves a lot of uncertainty for this huge group of companies coming up through clinical development. 
uh, around how their drugs will be paid for and what price they'll get for it. But it also sounds, Lauren, like nobody is holding back from entering the field or developing drugs in the field because of that concern. A lot of the people I've spoken with, a lot of the companies I've spoken with have said, if we develop a drug that works, we're confident that reimbursement will catch up. It will be there when we need it. So we'll see. Have they spoken (laughs) to Bluebird recently? (laughs) That's a good question. Yeah, just a quick note on Bluebird. They've now split the company in two. One company will focus on their cancer assets and the other will be, is it rare diseases, Lauren? It's mostly rare diseases. I think it's the gene therapy side. Some of these safety issues that have come up raise some translational issues, Lauren. For instance, we're seeing liver tox and people that didn't show up in preclinical models and liver cancer in preclinical models that doesn't seem to show up in humans yet can cause clinical hold. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this was the topic of an FDA advisory committee meeting last month. And I think just with the stakes being so high for safety issues, there's just a lot of concerns about the fact that preclinical models for tox don't seem to be that reflective of what's happening in humans. And with the cancer issue in particular, there are certain mouse models that are developing hepatocellular carcinoma. It's mostly neonatal mice that are immune compromised. There are certain genetic backgrounds where this seems to happen. But with the fact that so few gene therapy human patients have been followed long-term, it's a risk that regulators can't completely ignore at this time. It's happening in mice. Humans actually lack one locus in particular where the AAV vector seems to be integrating in mice that may or may not be responsible for the development of this cancer. So that's one potential explanation for why it's not happening in humans. But there's just so much uncertainty around it. No one's sure if that's why mice are developing cancer. No one's sure if there's an integration locus in humans that is similar. Humans have have some sites that have some similarities to to this site in mice. And it's become an issue for companies. Biomarin's clinical trial had a clinical trial that was placed on hold, I think, last month because of this issue. The clinical trial was running, and then in preclinical trials that were running in parallel, a bunch of mice developed these tumors. So it's a development risk, an uncertain safety risk. When it comes to the solutions, are companies engineering mice to, I don't know, change this locus, to reduce the integration, or doing studies to figure out if that is indeed the issue, in which case it seems like it wouldn't necessarily be relevant to people? Like, what's, what's happening there? Honestly, from the companies that I spoke with, I haven't heard that any company is trying to create new mice. There's a lot of academic research around this topic, but in the meantime, the strategies seem to be using multiple animal models. You have to test in this mouse model where they're having cancer, but non-human primates are, are not developing the tumors and the different mice are not developing the tumor. So creating a complete preclinical package is one strategy. And the other is some companies and academic researchers have found that the promoters and the enhancers that are going into these AAV gene therapies might have something to do with that cancer risk. So if you can create your product initially so that it doesn't cause cancer in these mice, there's a better chance going forward that that particular cancer risk is not there. There's still uncertainty around whether or not you could develop cancer in different mice with different genetic backgrounds. 
To me, this is a classic case where there should be some kind of public-private partnership, maybe a project taken on by NCATs. This is a, a problem across the field. It probably is going to spill into other fields. You know, we talk about CAR-Ts also involving gene therapies, and who knows what other kinds of uh, fields could benefit from this. But either way, just animal models or getting rid of the animal models either way, just to, to correct what it seems to be a broad translational problem that is really a hurdle. That's kind of what certain NIH institutes like NCATs are dedicated, set up to do. And it doesn't have to be only in the US. I think be interested to see if there's some kind of public-private partnership initiative to, to take this on. People have been calling for that. There's this issue of standards. It's not just the components that go into the gene therapy. It's the dosing too. There's so much uncertainty around whether there is some threshold dose of a gene therapy that would cause liver toxicity and cause tumors to develop in livers. And there's no systematic study of these AUV vectors that are being developed across companies to see the factors that, that impact that toxicity. So a public-private partnership is the right direction. And Lauren, you wrote a fantastic story I'm going to say a short while back about gene therapy, the next version of gene therapy. Is it 2.0? Are we up to 3.0? Mm-hmm. Talking about <laughs> what, are we, what model are we on right now? And, you know, there's other things. There's the, apart from manufacturing, there's vector sort of efficiencies and changes that they, I think, believe the next generation of gene therapies will benefit from. And so are we seeing progress on that front? We are. Stay tuned for another story on that topic. But the majority of the companies that have formed in the past five years are working on some type of next generation innovation to address tissue tropism, immunogenicity, manufacturing, and a host of other problems. When we broke down the current activity with AAVs, there seemed to be the most concentrated in neurology and ophthalmology. So with ophthalmology, you can inject into the eye, right? You might sidestep some of this liver tox, but there's other issues there. Within those two therapeutic areas, what do you foresee as the risk coming up for those programs? So we've seen the risk for these direct injections into the eye. The safety risks are kind of minimized by the fact that the eye is so self-contained and Probably the worst thing that could happen is a patient could lose eyesight in whatever eye is injected, which a lot of these patients are on track to lose their vision anyway. So the safety risks in that case are minimized relative to a systemic AAV. But I think an issue that we're seeing is that with gene therapies, biomarkers are just such an important component of development. And they're so hard to to track whether or not your gene therapy is delivering the gene and it's producing protein and, and you're getting to enough cells and things like that. You know, you can't biopsy the eye to, to get that marker and to get an early indication of whether your therapy is working. And that's sort of a proof that you can get easily if you're targeting liver or different organs. For neurology, there are some of the same kind of safety concerns that are coming up separate from the systemic liver targeting AAVs. But when you're injecting into the brain or into the spinal cord, there seems to be this issue of where you inject, there's a high concentration of AAV. And most of the AAV toxicities are related to inflammation, the immune response against the vector. So there seems to be some kind of inflammation happening where you're injecting the AAVs into the CNS. 
so far, that doesn't seem to have actual consequences. It's the type of thing that doctors are seeing on MRIs. And at the meeting, it seemed like there wasn't a lot of concern about it. There wasn't a reason to change the way that you're injecting these or anything like that. But it's just a side effect to be on the lookout for to make sure that doesn't materialize into into any neurological issues for patients. So rays of light, Lauren, I mean, there's been a lot of clinical holds this year. Are companies still stuck in neutral there or, or are they lifting? Well, one example is Bluebird. They had some clinical holds related to potential cancer, a cancer that developed in some patients that were treated with their ex vivo lentiviral-based gene therapies. And some of those holds have been lifted. It's been determined in a couple, one or two of those cases. I'm not sure that the gene therapy was probably not the cause of these hematological malignancies that happened in those patients. In one case, they do suspect that it was the cause, but some of those trials are moving forward. And the Sereptive program that we mentioned I think they're entering a phase three trial now. They've had some recent data. So things are moving along. Yeah. And as I think one of you said earlier, companies are still being formed in this space. Just two weeks ago, we saw Apple Tree Partners launch Intergalactic with a non-viral gene therapy technology that's designed to avoid the modalities safety issues, and expand the addressable indications, ATP invested $75 million in that Series A round. Simone, what are investors, what should they be thinking as they approach the space after all the lessons of this year? Well, I think investors have to be realistic and understand that gene therapy is standard drug development. It doesn't happen overnight. There's every reason to believe with gene therapy and many of the new modalities, especially that operate at the level of DNA and RNA, that your biology risk is lower or should I call target risk? Because quite often, you know exactly what target you're going for and what you need to do. So your only issue is getting the gene in there. How hard can it be? You know, so I think, um, (laughs) I, I, I think that the target risk probably is way lower than, let's say, for a small molecule or something like that. But at the end of the day, there's a lot, a lot that are, I don't know if systemic is the right word, but field-wide problems still to be sorted out. One thing I would bring up is an analysis we did several months ago, looking at new modalities that have made it to market. And if you look at something like ADCs, and I think we're now starting to see bispecifics in the same way, what you see is like one get on the market and then the field goes through this kind of sometimes several years long wait until the next one gets on. Sometimes a molecule gets taken off the market. Then there's a bit of a lag for a third one. And then sort of after that, it starts to accelerate. I think gene therapy is in that stage where you've got the first one on the market depending on which market you can, one or two or where you start counting kind of thing. But it's really in that lag phase now that one has made it through, but it didn't necessarily smooth the path to a whole lot of others. There'll be another, and then there'll still be a bit of a lag, and then there'll be another. And at some point, it will start to become, I don't want to use the word turnkey because that is a little bit glib, but a whole lot easier. And I think when we reach that point, investors, A, will get their returns, but also we'll start to see 
probably much shorter paths to development, much more predictable paths. So what you're really looking for at that point is that the risk you're taking on relates to your specific patient population or that specific biology, rather than issues that are broadly felt across the field, like the translational problems that we've talked about. Good points there, Simone. I want to bring it home now. Lauren, I know you have a piece you're working on that's going to come out in the coming days. Can you give us a little preview there? Sure. So the next installment of this gene therapy analysis is a look at the gene therapy companies that have been formed in the last five years. And I'm looking at the disease areas that they're working in, the types of next generation technologies that they're pursuing. You mentioned the non-viral. That's one of the the many areas that I think the next generation of companies is really focusing on and the types of gene therapies that people are interested in moving forward. And the next generation types of innovations that these companies are working on include capsid engineering for AAV vectors, innovations in the types of transgene structures that companies are using. It's not all about just replacing a gene that's mutated in a certain disease. There are some really interesting ways that the companies are engineering these vectors. There are different delivery technologies, and I'm not talking about the vector itself. I'm talking about the way they're actually put into the body. And there are also different ways that companies are engineering control of their transgenes. So expression cassette control techniques with different promoters and enhancers and other regulatory elements. Like control with a small molecule, that kind of thing? Yes, there are some very interesting ones where you're actually inserting or delivering a receptor into a neuron or different types of cells, for example, that can then be controlled by a small molecule that you're delivering with the gene therapy. And there are some other companies that are doing their gene therapies deliver an siRNA, for example, against the mutant gene. So you're knocking that gene out completely. So you don't have the toxic effects of the mutant gene. And then it also delivers a corrected copy. So fixing the problem in the way that maybe a gene editing therapy would. Excellent. Well, I look forward to reading this piece, Lauren, and uh, your other piece, Gene Therapies, A Bad Year, is already on the website. And some of the other articles that Simone and Selena have mentioned, you can also find by digging into the BioCentury archives. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.